Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Arthur Snell. How to bring peace to warring countries remains one of the biggest challenges in foreign policy, and the record of decades-long conflicts in places like Afghanistan, Congo and Iraq suggests that governments aren't very good at this. So why is peacebuilding so ineffective and how can it be done better? To answer this question, I'm delighted to welcome Séverine Autser to the bunker. Séverine is the author of The Frontlines of Peace, An Insider's Guide to Changing the World, and has worked in the field with international organisations and NGOs in a wide array of conflicted countries. Séverine, welcome to the bunker. Well, thank you so much, Arthur, for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Severine, let's sort of dive straight in. As I mentioned there in introduction, you've published this book, and of course, you've got an enormous amount of, of frontline experience yourself working in conflict environments. In your book, you explore the idea of something that you describe as Peace Inc., Peace Incorporated. We'll be able to perhaps explain to the audience sort of what that is and how, in general, the international community sort of deals with what they call peace building. Yes, of course. So Peace Inc. is the conventional way to build peace. That's the way to build peace that I'm sure you're familiar with and everybody who listens to us is familiar with. It's the large peace conferences that are organized in New York, in Geneva, in Addis Abeba that bring together warlords and presidents and prime ministers and and ministers and that end up in handshakes between presidents and abstract peace agreements that actually don't make any difference on the ground because violence continues. And it's really the kind of thing that we've seen all over the world. We've seen it in Afghanistan, in Israel and the Palestinian territories, in Congo. It's a conventional way to build peace that cannot work and that doesn't work. As you said, it's very widespread. We've all seen the sort of the kind of TV reports of peace conferences and, and we hear the tragic stories of wars continuing. But it's also, it seems to be that Peace Inc., the way it rolls out on the ground is also very similar. It feels the same whichever country you find yourself in. Is that correct? Yes, it, it is. And, and that's very sad. Uh, the way peace building works, whether you're in Afghanistan, in Congo, in Somalia, is based on a series of very misleading assumptions, uh, like the idea that only top-down intervention can end armed violence. So again, you just need to get a peace agreement between, among elites, between presidents and prime ministers and rebel leaders, and then peace is automatically going to trickle down on the ground, while we know that it virtually never happens. Um, there is also this idea that all good things come together. So we can arrive, whether in Afghanistan or in Congo or in Colombia, and to, we can promote all good things as a package deal. So we're going to promote peace and human rights and democracy and gender equality and anti-corruption, good governance, etc. Um, and Again, we don't realize that there are, uh, there are tensions between the different components of our package deal. So, for instance, that organizing elections right after a war actually promotes violence. And then there is the assumption that 
really, really drives me insane. It's the assumption that only outsiders have the required skills and expertise to build peace. That as someone coming from New York, I know better than someone who lives in the conflict and who experiences the conflict. Of course, Severine, uh, you can talk about this with some authority because you yourself were part <laughs> of Peaceland at one point, weren't you? Yes, exactly. I mean, it's all based on my personal stories and and on looking at what I did. But can I tell you how my own career in international aid got started? Because I think that's a really good example of Peace Inc. That would be great. Please go ahead. Okay. So when I was 23, I got my very first job out of graduate school as assistant country director for Médecins du Monde, Doctors of the World, in Kosovo. At the time, I didn't speak, well, I still don't speak Albanian or Serbo-Croatian. I had virtually no knowledge of Kosovo histories, politics, and culture. Um, I remember I actually started reading my first book about the Balkans when I was on the flight going there, but I was coming from Paris, and so the flight was way too short, and I yeah. never finished that book. <laughs> but I got the job because I spoke decent English. I had two fancy master's degrees. I had a good training in political analysis, and I had some field experience in a variety of post-war places and developing countries. And so when I arrived in Kosovo, my job was to analyze the political, security, and humanitarian situation and write reports for my supervisors. But it was my assistant, Nerim, who had the skills that I didn't have because Nerim spoke fluent Albanian and Serbo-Croatian. He had lived in Kosovo all his life. He had a tremendous knowledge of the Balkans' history, politics, and culture, and he was much older and much, much wiser than I was. Mm -hmm. But I was the outsider. Yeah. And so I was in charge. You were the so-called international and he was the local hire. Exactly. And, and the thing is that it was not just a stroke of good luck for me and bad luck for Nerim, because I've realized afterwards in my research and, and in working with non-governmental organizations and international organizations, that this is the kind of typical situation for uh, peace builders. When you look at the management positions, it's foreigners who fill the management positions and local people who make up the lower level staff. And so the consequences on the grounds are, are often disastrous. I suppose then, sort of stepping forward a bit, you went through this path yourself and you obviously saw a lot of people working in these ways very much with the outsider knows best as a sort of model, and you started to look for alternatives. So what were the things that you started to see that did work and how were they different? I'll give you one of my favorite one. It's the island of Ijwi in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So you know that for the past 20 years or 25 years, actually, one of the deadliest conflicts since World War II has raged around Ijwi and uh, several million people have died. Uh, hundreds continue to die every day, despite the presence of one of the largest and one of the most expensive peacekeeping mission in the world. Yeah. But Ijwi, this uh, small island on Lake Kivu, Ijwi itself has avoided mass violence. Yeah. And what's what's super interesting is that 
all of the elements that have led to generalized fighting in other parts of Congo are present in Ichwe because it has a geostrategic location. Uh, it's located right at the border between Congo and Rwanda, which have been at war regularly for the past 20 years. Uh, Ichwe has mineral resources, ethnic tensions, lack of state authority, extreme poverty. I mean, we could go on and on. It's got the full set. It's got the full set, like everything that have led to really generalized fighting, mass violence, massacres in the neighboring provinces. And, and so when you talk with people in each way, you realize that it's not the state or the army or the police who manage to control tensions. And it's not foreign peace builders. It's not the peacekeeping mission. It's not United Nations officials. It's not foreign donors, but it is the members of the community themselves. Yeah. And the way they do that is that uh, they, they foster what they call a culture of peace. They also organize in grassroots associations and local structures uh, that help resolve conflicts. And they draw on very strong beliefs uh, that help prevent violence by both insiders and outsiders. So, for instance, they rely on blood packs. Blood packs are traditional promises between two families or, or two individuals who agree never to hurt each other. They build on on, on beliefs around sorcery, etc. Ichwe is fascinating, but the, the lessons we can learn from Ichwe is that local community resources can sometimes build peace better than the usual elite agreements and outside interventions. One of the things that it seems that your example from Ichwe shows is not that then we take a note of what they did in Ichwe and tell people in other places to do that, because obviously <laughs> that's just repeating the same old problem. But it, it comes out of the, the as you said, the local culture and, and the local practices. Yes, exactly. I'm absolutely not saying let's all have blood packs with our enemies so that we can <laughs> so that we can resolve tensions. Um, no, what, what I'm saying is that I've seen these kind of success stories of what I call unlikely peace. So places where everything conspires to cause violence and and yet somehow you have peace like in Ijwi. So I found places like that all over the world, in Colombia, in Afghanistan, in Israel and the Palestinian territory, in Somalia. And I tell all of these stories in the front lines of peace because I want to show that there are many different paths to peace. So we, we can't have a template and use it all over the world, um, but we have to realize that there are as many paths to peace as there are individual and local circumstances. The common thread in all of these stories is that the residents achieved peace thanks to grassroots bottom-up efforts um, that everyone was involved. That's really important. So including the poorest and the least powerful members of the community and including also combatants and perpetrators of violence. Yeah. And all of these people, they all build on their very specific, unique local histories, politics, and cultures. 
And sometimes they had foreign supports, but really not the kind of foreign supports that we were discussing 10 minutes ago, the Peace Inc. kind of support, but rather uh, support by people that I call my model interveners. So foreigners like you and I who respect local residents, who listen to them, and who actually build on their skills and on their knowledge. Now, one of the things that you've noted in the book, which really stuck out with me as unexpected, was the point that democracy and introducing democracy doesn't really help with peace. And of course, from my own experience, I've worked in in Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, and these are all places where it's very easy to make the assumption that if you have an inclusive political system, then it would be more likely to be at peace. But that isn't what your research finds. So can you can you tell us a bit more about that? I can, but it's actually a kind of very common finding if you look at the research on international peace building. We've known that for 10, 20 years, and in in the appendix of the book, I cite probably 20 or or 30 key thinkers on on this topic. Mm. So to summarize really, really briefly, uh, it's the idea that if you... It depends on how you define democracy. And the way we define it usually in Peace Inc. is that we focus virtually everything on organizing elections uh, instead of looking at all of the conditions that make democracy work, like um, freedom of press, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, etc., etc. On top of that, we focus on elections and we try to organize them as quickly as possible after Mm. the end of a war. So without realizing that when you're pitting two opponents against each other or or three, you know, a former rebel, a government and a civil society activist, it's not something that's going to promote reconciliation and understanding. On, on rather the opposite, they're going to try to mobilize their followers by pitting their followers against their opponent supporters, yeah. and that's going to create tension. So there is a, a huge body of research showing that elections and transitions to democracy after a war actually promotes violence in many cases rather than promoting peace and security. So now you said that this was what uh, you found the most surprising. That's not what surprised me the most when I was doing the research. So what did surprise you the most? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) So what surprised me, well, there were so many things. The first thing is that I found pockets of peace, even in the most violent places. And that's something I was hoping when when I started the research. But uh, after two, three years of research, I hadn't found anything and I was really starting to despair. Mm. And the fact that eventually I did find these pockets of peace, like really all over the world, to me, that was surprising. And that was also really, really helpful. Another thing that surprised me is uh, that ordinary individuals have a lot more power than we believe to resolve conflict and to decrease violence. Another thing that surprised me is that everything that we learn in conflict zones around the world, we can use all of these lessons to decrease tensions and violence in our own communities. So whether in the United Kingdom for you or in the United States for me, whether we live in a big city or a small village, we can really use all of these lessons to make the situation better at home. One of the things that that I I was very interested 
by in your book is you talk a bit about Somaliland. And, and for those listeners are less familiar, this is a part of the country known as Somalia, which regards itself as a, as a separate entity and behaves like an independent country, but it actually has not been recognized by any other country in the world. So it's in a, it's in a sort of anomalous position. And something that you say, which I found really interesting, is that in some ways that has actually helped them find peace. Whereas, of course, Somaliland is striving and has strived to gain independence and recognition for decades. But so, so could, could you explain that a little? The thing with Somaliland is that because it's an unrecognized entity, the Peace Inc. approach cannot work in Somaliland, meaning that United Nations officials are not allowed to have this kind of direct contact with Somalilanders uh, yeah. the way they can, with Somaliland leaders, yes. the way they do with uh, Somali leaders. Because mm-hmm. Somaliland is supposed to be part, still part of Somalia, when United Nations officials and diplomats and donors um, try to do something for Somaliland, they have to interact with the warlords who are based in Mogadishu, in the capital of Somalia, rather than interacting with the leaders of Somaliland who are based um, thousands of miles away in Hargeza. And so what that means is that donors and diplomats and United Nations peacekeepers have had to find a different way to get involved in Somaliland, and they've had to take a backseat. So yes, Somaliland has been striving for sovereignty and recognition because they want all the perks associated with sovereignty and recognition and statehood, mm. like, uh, you know, aid, a lot of aid budgets and, yeah. uh, and a seat at the United Nations General Assembly, etc. On the other hand, the fact that they didn't have this massive influx of foreigners in Hargeza and all around Somaliland means that they managed to build peace according to what they thought what best. So they were in the lead. They organized their own grassroots conferences all over Somaliland. They took a lot of time. Uh, they took years to to talk really about the issues, and and they designed a peace and a state and a society uh, that is based on their own culture, on Islamic laws and cultures and values, on their clan system that is very strong. While if you look at the rest of Somalia, Peace Inc. was running the show. And in the rest of Somalia, it was outsiders-led. It was top-down. And uh, so what happened is that the peace conferences were organized abroad. They included only the warlords, the leaders. They went very quickly to try to get a peace agreement, and they never worked because, again, Peace Inc. is an approach that doesn't and cannot work. And so violence has continued in Somalia. We have shootings and bombings um, every day now, while Somaliland has been really peaceful for the past 20 years. What some of my former colleagues in, in, you know, in the British Foreign Office or Foreign and Development Office, as it is now, they would say, 
look, we are outsiders. If if we, Britain, is trying to help in, let's say, Central Africa, you know, we, we, by definition, at some level, we're coming from the outside. So I suppose what I'm interested to know, and, and perhaps this would be sort of somewhere to conclude on, were if, if, an, if the sort of amazing thing happened and uh, you, Severine, found yourself as the UN Secretary General, or maybe you've become the, the Foreign Minister of France, or anyway, you, you suddenly have the levers. What would you get the major sort of international donor countries and or the major international organizations? What would you get them to do differently? Because you've made such a compelling case that it's not being done right. And you've talked about how local ownership and, and local uh, grass up grassroots can work so much better. But what should these international bodies do? They're actually asking me that. So I've been <laughs> doing this month, uh, last month and this month, I've been doing briefings to USAID, the UN, um, the United Nations Security Council. I'm actually talking to your people at the United Kingdom's Department of Foreign and Commonwealth Office uh, yeah. soon. So anyway, uh, what I tell them is that that's the reason why I wrote the Front Lines of Peace. It's to to give them ideas of what to do so that they, they can stop just talking the talk and they can actually walk the walk. They can follow the models of the uh, organizations and the individuals that, that I portray in the front lines of peace. Um, and so what, what my role models do concretely is that they support local conflict resolutions in, assist, in addition to elite agreements. So obviously I'm not saying let's forget about elite agreements and about governments and about yeah. leaders, uh, but I'm saying, you know, they also support local conflict resolutions. They build on, on the knowledge and the skills of the ordinary people and the local activists who live in conflict zones. And, and for that, I have a lot of stories of how you can do that exactly so that uh, people who work for donor agencies have ideas on of what they could do. Again, not using a template, but, but having ideas of what has worked in other places. I tell them also, make sure that you plan deployment and strategies over the long term, because it's obvious that we cannot build peace in six months or in a year. And of course, when I say it like that, everybody nods and everybody says yes. And then you see the next call for proposal, which is, oh, we are looking to fund a peace building project uh, over the next six months. So again, yeah. so planning, it hasn't gone in. <laughs> well, talking the talk, not walking the walk. And also sending your, your diplomats, sending uh, or, or your peace builders, sending them for more than a couple of years at a time. And I tell them, don't put your logos everywhere. It's really disempowering for communities on the ground uh, to see something that they thought they had achieved that has the big logo from, you know, the UK or USAID or the United Nations. So I'm saying stop claiming ownership of everything that you do, but rather like turn the spotlight on the achievements of, of the people you're meaning to help. And and I and the last thing I tell them is well no I tell them so many things mm. uh, but <laughs> I tell them also to to recruit and deploy a lot more people like the model peace builders that I portray in the book and to promote these people to give them more resources more responsibilities so that means changing the way their human resources depart department uh, go and recruit people the kind of skills that they value. 
Um, and I tell them to encourage flexibility, accountability to people on the ground. So plenty of little things that could make a big difference that are possible, again, because I have a lot of stories in the front lines of peace showing that other organizations, other donors have managed to do that. And these are the things that actually make a huge difference on the ground, wherever they are used, whether they're used in Congo or in the United Kingdom or in Somalia or in Colombia. Brilliant. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to come to a conclusion there. Severin Otser's book, The Frontlines of Peace, published by Oxford University Press, is widely available. I commend it to everyone, even if you don't feel that you're a sort of specialist in this area. It's extremely accessible and fascinating. And Severin, thank you very much for joining us here in the bunker. Well, Arthur, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Remember, there's a new bunker every day from Monday to Thursday and Saturday edition two with our panel show edition on Tuesdays. Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can support the show on Patreon too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.